Thanks for coming out this Sunday morning. You can kind of scrunch in a little bit because we're not going to use any amplification or anything. For those that are hearing these talks on uh, iTunes or through our website, you're welcome to ask questions or correspond with us by email newclassbusiness at gmail.com. We also have a membership class online at our website at www.utahchristians.org. Everything is inspired by the teachings of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the founder, Acharya of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Today, we want to talk about mastering our moods, controlling our moods. Too many of us are living life like a roller coaster, up when things are good and down and depressed when things are bad. Overly excited, overly elated when we think things are going good and overly depressed when we think things are going bad. And don't, like I said last night, don't, don't hit anyone in the ribs or look at them during the course of this talk. <laughs> what we need to do is strive for stability of all the different qualities that we can manifest or work on there's none which is more uh, wanted by God himself there's none that is more valued by God and there's no other quality other than consistency and stability by which we'll get the profuse favors of God we need to learn how to be the same day in and day out of course we all have emotions and feelings we learn that we're spiritual beings we're sentient beings and that means that we're always feeling something and we're always experiencing some emotions. However, those feelings and those emotions are not meant to master us. We are meant to control them. When we rein them carefully, using the mind as the reins and imagining the horses as the five senses or emotions, when they're reined nicely and controlled, you can travel great distances, you can achieve great things. But when they're not reined, those uncontrolled horses will carry the chariot, the driver, the passenger, all over a ditch. So we need to live with emotions, with feelings, but with them under control. So we can guide them and reach our desired destination. Not being controlled and buffeted here and there by circumstances. Not living life on a roller coaster. And some people who are too much attached to that which is external, you never know what they're going to do. Uh, they put everyone around them in apprehension and anxiety because you never know what they're going to be like at any given time on any given day. They might be happy on Sunday, depressed on Tuesday, fun to be around on Wednesday, Thursday. Watch out. If you say the wrong word or give them the wrong look, they're going to jump right down your throat. It's not easy to live with a moody person. Moodyism. is selfish. It's self-centered. It's not fair to your family members. It's not fair to your associates. It's not fair to your co-workers. Here's Calvin, who's known for his moodiness, screaming. I've never seen Calvin when he wasn't screaming. I've never seen Calvin when he wasn't stinking up the place with his moodiness. I've never seen Calvin with his mouth closed. It's always like this big gaping hole from which he's shouting various uh, insulting things. And today he says, I'm in a very bad mood, so nobody better mess with me today, boy. Moody people are difficult to live with. They're all over the board. People around them on pins and needles trying to guess what they're going to be like at any given moment. And if you have a problem with moods, uh, you need to work on this. You need to go to a higher 
level. Life is too short to deal with moody family members, moody associates, moody, sour, short-templed employees that you have to drag off the floor every day and give them a reorientation. The good news is that as emotional as we are and as strong as our feelings are, our will can be trained by practice to be stronger. And if we master our feelings and practice exercising will over our feelings, in the long term, we'll be much more happy, much more serene, and much more content. It's possible to do. I mean, even as we sit here today, we can think of things that we'd rather not do that we do anyway. Like, no one spontaneously gets up on April 15th and says, boy, I would really like to pay my taxes today. You know, we don't want to do that. We, we, don't, we feel like we shouldn't have to do that, and yet we go ahead and do it in spite of ourselves. Uh, emotionally, we may or may not feel like getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and changing the baby's diapers. Uh, but we overcome our uh, antipathy to that in order to do it because we know it's the right thing to do. A good example of being able to control our feelings is to imagine a wife and a husband arguing alone in their, in their living room. Uh, their voices are getting louder and louder. Their blood pressures are rising. Tension is so thick in the room you can almost cut it with a knife. The phone rings right in the middle of the argument, right? The husband of the wife turns and picks up the phone and says, Hello. <laughs> They don't want any third party to know that all's not right, you know, in the Jones family. And they can really just put a clamp on it. They can turn it on a dime if they want. From, so, so we, we know we can do it. And the more we do it, the easier it becomes. If we don't, in fact, make these kinds of changes in time, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. Our relationships are going to erode. You can only bite someone's head off so many times before they just live in fear of you and love and trust evaporates. You can only order the kids to make their beds. You can only threaten them. You can only use fear, a stick over their head, so many times before you find that respect and love has evaporated. If you don't control your moods, your relationships will suffer There'll be opportunities that would have crossed your path in school and in family way and in uh, employment that will not cross your path. If you get a reputation for being an unpredictable, moody person, there'll be opportunities that would have come your way which will not come your way. Doors will be closed which otherwise would have been open for you. One of the signs of wisdom, one of the signs of maturity is stability. And that's a rare thing in our modern superficial society. Our society is a feel-good and immediate gratification society. It exists on the surface. It's a fast-moving society with a lot of velocity, a lot of speed, a lot of flash, and very, very little emphasis on substance and character. So one who controls their mood in this society will be like a a rock, will be like an oak tree in the desert. That'll be a person that people will look to. That'll be a person that people want to promote. That'll be a person that people want to be the CEO of the company, that want to be the principal of the school. That'll be the person that people go to for stability, for counseling, and for grounding. A stable person is not hard to live with. A stable person is a delight to live with. 
uh, they're dependable. And the main thing about a stable person is, if they've got problems, they know it's not going to help the problems by dumping on other people. You know, when did you ever help your problem by dumping or taking it out on other people? You might as well just, uh, what do they call it? You might as well just, what do you call it? I, I want to say, uh, stick your chin out or suck it up. That's what the word is. Just suck it up, right? Just suck it up and deal with it yourself and don't take it out on others. I have such respect for the owner of our local Alpha Graphics franchise in uh, Orem. His name is Clark Thornock. He bought the franchise at a high price when the economy was booming a few years ago, so he paid a premium price for the franchise. No sooner did he do that than everything tanked. And he was scrambling like that. Employees coming and going, orders diminishing, uh, things having to be reprinted at, the, at a loss to the company. And yet Clark is always cool and calm. Say, Clark, how do you do it? I know there must be all kinds of things going on every day here in a printing business. You know, a printing business is not the business you choose if you want to be cool and calm and serene. I mean, we all intuit that. I said, what's your secret, Clark? He says, he says, he says, I'm like the duck. I'm like the duck. Above the surface, the duck looks serene and calm and like nothing bothers him. But under, if you look underneath the surface, his little web feet are just going like crazy, like this and like this and like this. So Clark says, you know, whatever is going on, I don't show it. I don't dump on other people. And stability is a choice that you make. It's a conscious choice. You get up in the morning and you say, I'm going to make a good day. The unstable person gets up in the morning and says, thinks, I wonder what the day is going to be like today. I wonder what, you know, the future holds. You know, I wonder what, whether people are going to be nice to me, whether they're going to dump on me, whether things are going to go my way, or whether they're going to miss against me. A, a stable, mature person does not allow themselves to be buffeted by circumstances. They take their attitude. You, we can't change the circumstances, but we have every control over our attitude. And if in the first thing in the morning, even if you've got the blahs, even if you don't feel very well, if you say, I, have got, I don't have control of the world, I don't have control of others, but I do have control of my own attitude. And so I'm deciding right now it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day, and I'm going to feel good, and I'm going to smile no matter what happens, and I'm going to be a blessing, and I'm going to be an example to other people. If you have this attitude, people will always be happy to see you. This stability, this steadfastness is in opulence. And opulence means that which is attractive, that which makes you attractive. Not that, oh no, dad's home, wonder what kind of a mood he's in today. There was a story of the dad who had a bad day at work. He came home, he said an unkind word to his wife. His wife said an unkind word to their teenage daughter. The teenage daughter went and uh, slapped her younger sister. The younger sister kicked the dog. The dog bit the cat, and the cat uh, ripped the head off the Barbie dog. <laughs> Wouldn't it be better if he just, if the husband had just walked in the door and just ripped the head off the Barbie doll and skipped all the intermediate steps? <laughs> Instead of starting that chain reaction. <laughs> Mature person, if you have a bad attitude, if you have the blahs, if you feel the breath, just flush it and move on. Just flush it and move on. One of the reasons why we as a religious organization 
do not advocate the taking of any stimulants, coffee, tea, even cigarettes, is because once you get yourself under chemical, once you allow yourself chemical control for your moods, sure, those chemicals will give you an elevated mood. But the downside is that those same chemicals will make you more depressed than you would have been naturally. And when you're dependent, when your system, when your chemistry, when your physiology becomes dependent upon some external stimulus, then you no longer have control over your moods. You're like riding an elephant or you're like holding the tail of a tiger. So one of the first principles to get one's mood under control is to be free from any artificial, powerful external stimulus. Then you actually have a good chance. Then it's not such a, it's not such a difficult thing to do if you're free from those things. I was just, uh, I was just over at Harmon's picking up some bread. And, uh, and as I walked in, I happened to go over and check my blood pressure at the pharmacy. And they have a big sign there in the pharmacy. The oxy, what is it called? Oxycodone is under, is under safe under a time lock. And I'm thinking, this is in Harmon's. You know, this isn't some little corner drugstore, you know, that someone could break in a side window or jimmy the back door. This is in Harmon's. This has got security guards. It's open almost 24 hours a day. The pharmacy is inside the already secure building, and yet they're still taking the trouble to warn people that it's under a time-operated lock and key safe. So how big of a problem is this, the, the, the addiction to elevating your mood artificially? And the problem with that is that then you are, it drops further than it would have. In a conversation with Prabhupada one time, Allen Ginsberg, he said to Prabhupada, he said, don't you think that in this age, Kali Yuga, Krishna might have had the sense of humor to have appeared, to have invented himself, to have manifested himself as an LSD pill? And Prabhupada said, that's all right, but the problem is that when you take some material stimulus to get high, you also subject yourself to the most basic of material laws, which is what? What goes up must come down. And it goes down a lot further than it would have had you not subjected yourself to that in the first place. So, uh, assuming we're sane and sober, if, even if you don't feel in a good mood, it's, it's entirely possible to discipline yourself. If not for your sake, for your family's sake, for your co-worker's sake, your kids are always looking at you. They're always looking at you. And if you can't control your moods, they're not going to be able to control their mood. They're not even going to have that as a value. They're not even going to have that as an aspiration. If you don't try, they're not going to try to. If you get caught in traffic and you're muttering expletives underneath your breath, uh, if you say an unkind word to your wife or vice versa, they're picking up on all of that. And that will set a bad example for them in their future life. David Hume, the famous English educator, said, We teach more often, not by precept, but by example. We teach, we convey more to people by what we do than by what um, we say. So, however much pressure you may be at school or however much pressure you may be at work, don't bring it home. Just check it at the door. Some people walk in a room and everybody feels the tension. It's like an elephant walked into the room because they're bringing their problems with them. But be disciplined in our thinking. Don't dwell, go around dwelling on our problems. 
It was a man that whenever there was a pressure in the house, financial pressure, health pressure, relational pressure, he would go out the back door, he would stay for about half an hour, he'd come back and he'd be cool and calm. And later on, when his son grew up, he asked Dad, why did you, you know, when there was some pressure, man, why did you disappear for half an hour and why were you so calm when you come back? So the father took his son out back. He showed him this majestic oak tree in the backyard. And he said, I would take my problems and I would tell all my problems. I would get them all off my chest to the oak tree. I wouldn't take it out on my wife or my kids. I'd take it out on the oak tree. <laughs> and I call it my trouble tree. The oak tree seemed to be able to absorb all of my negativity and all of my problems without being affected by it. And so I, I found that a very, very good technique. Now, husbands, we need to realize that your wife is not your trouble tree. Wives, we need to realize that your husband is not your trouble tree. It will affect them. It will affect them unless they're spiritually super excellent. So God will work from the inside to help us become steady, uh, get rid of our bad moods, but we also have to do something from the outside. We have to try to clamp down. We have to exercise a little bit of control. Um, a deeper life means that no matter how, much, how we feel, we do what's right. We're not guided by our feelings, but we're guided by what we know is right. And such a person who's deep and wide um, is compared to the ocean. The ocean is placid. Now, in the rainy season, there are lots and lots of flooding rivers that empty themselves into the ocean especially during the rainy season. And yet the ocean, although it's ever being filled, the Bhagavad Gita says it's always still because of its breadth and because of its depth. Prabhupada says here, this is also true of a person fixed in Krishna consciousness. As long as one has the material body, the demands of the body for sense gratification will continue, but the devotee, however, is not disturbed by such desires because of his or her fullness. Another example is of a tree near the bank of the river. A tree near the bank of the river, the roots go way down, and there's a constant source of nourishment, of strength, of vitality. So we connect ourselves to God, who is the ultimate supreme personality, who is the ultimate peaceful personality. Now, no one assumes more responsibility than God. He creates the world, he maintains the world, he administers each living being their desserts according to their karma. It's an incredible, it is the most unbelievable, unimaginable operation. And God assumes responsibility for that. And yet, if you look at him, he's always smiling. He's always serene. He's always stable. He's not moody. Every day the sun comes up on time, goes down on time. The seasons change year after year after year after year. Millennium after millennium after millennium. The planets go about their orbits just perfectly without crashing each other. Now imagine if God got up one day with the blahs, you know. And imagine if God was just, you know, I just, you know, I don't care. You know, I'm sick and tired of it. I need a break. Let the chips fall where they may. Imagine. Imagine the havoc. So God is above and beyond everything else consistent. Scientists have now discovered there's no such thing as matter. There's no such thing as matter. The more, Ramesh is a scientist, he'll verify this, the more detail they get in terms of discovering what's going on in this material world, the more they realize it's all energy. And that energy is consciousness. And that consciousness is the consciousness of God. 
So God is so steady, He's so stable, that things go on predictably for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And they're so predictable that we begin to call them lost. They're not lost. That is the determination. That is the steadfastness. That is the stability of God. He's not moody up one day and down another day. We are created in His image. So when we're in pure spiritual health, we're also not moody. We're not up. We're not down. We're somewhere in the middle. Uh, And that's what God values. In the Bhagavad Gita, who gets the favor of the Lord? Who gets the favor of the Lord? Tesham satsata yuktanam bhajatam priti purvikam dadami budi yogam tam yenamam avyantitim. Who gets the favor of the Lord? The greatest scholars? Nope. The greatest athletes? Nope. The greatest yogis? Nope. They may be scholars, they may be athletes, they may be yogis, but this is not the qualification for getting the favor of the Lord upon you. He says, Satatam Yuktanam, those who are consistent, those who are consistent in worshiping me. We have this practice of chanting on our beads. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram. And a set of beads has 108 on them. And one round, or one job, is 108 recitations of Hare Krishna mantra. So there are, so when people come and they're learning about this japa yoga, this practice of mantra meditation, generally we're very careful to tell them the most the most important quality that you can bring to this practice of chanting japa is consistency. Consistency. Better you start out modestly and do what you can do one round a day or two rounds a day and gradually on that foundation increase rather than making a show of chanting 16 or 20 or 32 rounds a day and then the next morning get up and say, well, I chanted so many rounds today. I'm, I'm feeling the fallout from that. I don't feel like doing it today. You know, Krishna is much more impressed by someone that chants one round a day with consistency than he is by someone who chants 16 rounds a day and then for three days after that he takes a break from it. It's consistency that wins the favor of the Lord. Just like a tree. A tree stands out in all kinds of weather, offering its shade, its flowers, its fruit for the benefit of others. It doesn't ask anything for the services that it renders. It is consistent. It doesn't matter whether it's scorching heat or freezing cold. The favors, the benefits of the tree are always there. Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said one can chant the Hare Krishna mantra constantly in a humble state of mind, feeling oneself more humble than the blade of grass, more tolerant than the tree, and ready to offer all respects to others. Stability is possible through humility. Humility makes stability possible. That one who is tolerant and willing to give all respects to others is one who can chant the holy names of the Lord and worship the Lord with consistency. And this, in a word, is the law of karma. Karma means what goes around comes around. So if you want something, you need to learn to give it away. If you want respect, you learn to show respect to others. If you want people to be compassionate upon you, you show compassion upon them. Whatever you want to get, you give it. You give it. And that will please the Lord. That will please the Lord. A verse from the 18th chapter. And the 18th chapter is the last verse of the Bhagavad Gita. 
And everyone knows that whatever an author puts in the end, that's what the author was getting to all along. That was the author's point, and that's what the author wanted to emphasize. So here we see steadfastness emphasized. Krishna says, O son of Parta, that's Arjuna, that determination which is unbreakable, which is sustained with steadfastness by yoga practice, and which thus controls the activities of the mind, life, and senses, is determination in the mode of goodness. The mode of goodness means that no matter what's coming against you, no matter what opposition there is, no matter what you're facing, you know that God is bigger than anything I'm facing. There is no enemy, there's no opponent, there's no backbiter that is bigger than the Lord of the universe. This problem is not permanent, it will come to pass. Have you ever heard that saying? It will come to pass? We'll interpret it in that way. Instead, it, it will come, it will come to pass. It will come to pass. <laughs> You understand that little shade of meaning that we just introduced? It, will, it comes to pass. That's, it doesn't come to stay. It doesn't come to roost. It doesn't come to take up residence in your home or in your heart. It only comes to pass. So be cool. Be cool. Anything that comes will also go. And so don't get all bent out of shape because of it. When you're steadfast and immovable, God will show. You will see the full mercy of God. You know, a lot of people go through dry seasons, economically, financially, relationally. They start to question the existence of God. They, their faith goes through a, a period of testing and all like that. If you stay in faith, if you stay in faith, God will not only support you during the dry seasons, you will prosper. You will prosper during the dry seasons while others are coming apart at the seams all around you. We have so much potential inside of us. God himself, the Lord of unlimited universes, has taken up residence in our hearts as the super soul or the paramatma. And all that potential will be released when God is able to trust you. When God sees you as a steady, consistent, humble servitor, then there are unlimited powers that he releases from within you. And it starts with being in the mode of nature, in the mode of goodness. The mode of goodness is that springboard, that launching pad from which great things can be accomplished. There are two other modes of nature. The mode of passion, ignorance, and they shackle one. The main difference between being in the mode of goodness and the mode of passion, ignorance, is in the mode of passion, ignorance, it's all about you. And in the mode of goodness, it's all about God. That's the main difference. When it becomes self-centered, then you fall into the lower modes of material nature and you become bound up. God gives us talents and abilities, and they're meant to be used to glorify God and to help other living beings. Uh, if we get talents and abilities and we use them for our own self-promotion and our own aggrandizement, that creates a disturbance in society. And we may prosper for some time, superficially, externally, but ultimately, we'll, that's not a path, that's not a life choice which leads to prosperity. It leads to total ruination. But who takes God, who puts God's plan for our finances in the center? Who puts God's plan for our family in the center? 
who puts God's plan for our business in the center and God's plan for our country in the center, who centers everything around God, does not have to worry about the future. Because God is the doer. And whether there's success or failure, it's up to God. It's not you doing it for yourself. Of course, when we work self-centeredly for a certain result, we become euphoric when we get what we want. And when we work self-centeredly, put energy and time and planning into a result which is for our own self-interest, and it goes against us, of course, we get very, very depressed. So how do we get out of this syndrome, out of this cycle? Very simple. Work for God. Work according to God's plan and not according to our plans. And His plan is the master plan. You'll never go wrong harmonizing with the master plan. So there are two things that we need to know in order to get free from moodiness, elation, and depression. First of all, I'm not the doer. I'm not the doer. God is the doer. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for the universe. If I put that in the center of my life, whatever happens is a win-win situation. If I'm working as a servant of God and then the endeavor meets with success or fail, it really doesn't matter. Because it's for God. It's God's arrangement. It's not up to me. So realize that I'm not the doer. And the second thing is, I'm not the body. I'm not the body. Most of what we achieve, if we're in material content, is for the benefit of this body. Or the extensions of this body, like children and family and country. But if you realize you're not the body, it frees you from so much effort and so much anxiety and so much stress. I'm not the body. Right in the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, you're not the body. So therefore, as an eternal spirit soul, not so chitina kanchiti. Don't hanker for anything, don't lament for anything. Because you're not part of this material world. This material world has nothing to do with you. The successes and failures, the dualities, the happiness and distress, the hot and cold, has nothing to do with you, it's only the body. And don't be affected by it. See yourself as separate from all the comings and goings of material nature. In fact, the self-realized soul is sometimes, have you ever taken a coconut in the grocery store and shaken it and heard it rattle? That's, that's not a coconut you want to buy, by the way, probably, because it's, it's old enough and mature enough <laughs> that the, the inside is detached from the outside. And there's a, there's a rattle there. See what I'm saying? So that's the uh, example, the metaphor for a realized soul. That while walking, while sleeping, while working, while doing one's duty, one feels himself separate at the same time. In the world, but not of the world. In the body, but not of the body. It's thinking of ourselves of the world that stresses us out and pitches us into moodiness. If we go through life like a lotus flower, which is in the water but never gets wet, then we can do our duties without being affected by the results. So I'm not the doer. God is the doer. I'm not the body. If God tells me to do something, if I get a dream sent by God for my life, and I go ahead and endeavor in that way, the result has already been achieved by God. If he tells me to do something, like Lord Chaitanya 500 years ago, he said to Chani, Hare Krishna will go to every town and village of the world. That's already been done. Because the word of God is fact. If I say, well, I want to build a temple in the field next door, that, 
there's a gap of time, of energy, of circumstances, and it may or may not happen, and it's definitely not going to happen today. But if God says something, it is a fact. He's saying it is a fact. It is only time which separates it. So that we don't see the chanting in every town and village of the world right now, but it's already been done. You just allow enough time, and it will have been accomplished. It's already been done. So if we participate, for instance, in that mission of the Lord, there's no doubt about the outcome. It's already been done. We're not doing it. He's already done it. We're just allowing ourselves to be used for His purposes. And in this way, we're free from attachment. There are many, many gifted people. Many, many people God is gifted with talents and abilities, and they don't get success. Uh, because, again, they use them for their own selfish purposes. I went to the University of Virginia many, many years ago. We had a football team, and there were two quarterbacks. One quarterback was not particularly talented. I remember his name was Hodges. But he was consistent. He was consistent. He didn't try for the big play. He wasn't a grandstander. You know, he, he, he handed the ball off very carefully. He, he didn't, you know, try to force the ball between two defenders. He was very, very conservative. And he wasn't flashy at all. And there was another quarterback who was just chock-a-block with talent. Uh, he could throw the ball the length of the football. He could run. I saw one time a 500-pound guy was coming to tackle him, and the guy was upright. He wasn't, like, laid out. He wasn't know, trying to do one of these. He was coming right at this guy to tackle, and he jumped over him. I've never seen anything like it in my life. He must have jumped seven feet, right? Without even breaking stride, came in and made a touchdown. Then the next play, fumbles it or throws an interception. He was either spectacular or he was absolutely dismal because it was all about him. It wasn't about the team. It wasn't about winning. It was all about him. And he didn't get much play time. He didn't get much play. It was the other guy who was on the field more often because he was consistent and he was predictable. So our gifts, our gifts may take us somewhere. Our gifts may take us to the quarterback position. But what's going to keep us there is character. Character. So we may have talents and abilities and we may use them to make money or get our name in the newspaper. Today a hero, tomorrow zero. But it's character that will keep us there. Not talents and gifts. There are plenty of talented, gifted people sitting on the sidelines while consistent people are down making the touchdowns. God is not happy if you're on the mountain for two days and then you're down in the valley for a month. He wants you to be in the middle. He wants you to take a calm delight. Not only should we not be overly depressed when things go against us, but we should not be overly manic or euphoric when things go our way. Let's learn to stay consistently happy, consistently grateful, consistently friendly. Consistency is one of the great keys to victory. Not living by what we feel, but by what we know. It's not a good idea to get real excited, to get high, to go to an emotional peak. Less is more. I once uh, read this poem, and you, 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 if you've ever read this poem, the, the refrain will stick in your mind. You can't get it out of your mind. And it's the love me less, love me long. Have you ever heard that poem? Love me less, love me long. Sounds a little confusing, a little cryptic, but what I think the author is saying is uh, less of this, you know, uh, attraction, 
infatuation, uh, gushing, touchy-feely, hypnotism over candlelight dinners, uh, romance. Less of that and more of character. You see, if you're guided to the altar by feelings and infatuation, then when those same feelings are no longer there, then you're going to walk out of the marriage. Those same feelings that guided you to the altar, those same feelings are going to take you to walk out of the marriage. So less of that, less of that gushiness and sentimental and feely feelings, and more of character, more focus. Rather than the flesh and the blood and the, you know, the sensuality of it, more focus on the vows that you took. I do, I do, till death do his part in sickness and in health, in happiness and distress. But love me less, love me long. You see, that's the secret to a long-term relationship. Not to temporary attraction or infatuation, but the kind of character by which one defines oneself by the vows that one makes. A righteous person would no longer abandon their vows than lose their life, you see, because that's what defines them. It's all about balance. It's all about balance. Prabhupada says the ability to overcome unsteadiness is called dati, steadfastness. When one is fully qualified, yet is humble and gentle, and when one is able to keep his balance, both in sorrow and in the ecstasy of joy, he has the opulence called stability, or sama. Many people fall prey to this manic, euphoric, overly elated Mood because they're living for the big event. Do you know people like that? They can't wait for their annual vacation. It's like they're counting, the, they've got a, they're ticking it off in the calendar at the office. And they can't wait to get out of the office to go camping or go to Europe for their vacation. And then two weeks later they come dragging in the office. Oh, my vacation was so great, but now I have 52 more weeks before I get to do it again. You know? <laughs> Up and down. Up and down, you know. Or the weekend, you know, daydreaming, you know, just sort of putting in the time, clocking the time, waiting to get out there on the weekend, and then Monday morning, oh boy, five more days of torture and torture. <laughs> or a lot of people, do you find people, uh, you know, <laughs> this is a perfect day to bring this up. I just realized this. Actually, uh, when I gave this talk last night, I think the game was in progress. Right? So, so I, I, when I went to Harmon's this morning, you know, I'm getting a lot of good lessons from that one little two-minute trip to Harmon's, you know. Never did a loaf of bread produce so many insights. <laughs> the oxycodone mouth. So I saw, I saw the headline, BYU Trump by Utah. <laughs> 54 to 10, like that. So imagine all the people have been looking forward to this game for months and months, the holy war, you know, and the BYU fans are up there, and it said it's the second quarter, I couldn't resist, you know, reading some of the details, said BYU fans had reason to celebrate into the second quarter when they led 10 to 7, but then Utah just took off and the final score was a rout. It was not since 1922 has Utah beaten BYU so thoroughly. Ah. So imagine yesterday, high, and today just like everybody, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> depressed I guess don't, don't live for big events it's a formula for disappointment our temple in Spanishburg opened 10 years ago in 2001 and uh, it was the result of years and years of planning effort fundraising 
uh, is a great triumph, a great achievement to build a million and a half dollar in Utah, a million and a half dollar temple in Utah Valley. But when I look back on that day, I don't remember myself as being particularly manic or ecstatic for two reasons. One is, I knew the temple was not an end. It was just the beginning. Uh, when you have a temple like that, you're going to get school tours, you're going to get invitations, more people are going to come to your festivals, and in a, in a word, people are going to listen to you. I think if there's one reason why you built the temple, so people would take it seriously, so they'd stop thinking of the Hare Krishnas as fringes or, or, or uh, cultists. You get their attention with a building like that. And then, with, then when you talk to them, they're going to listen to you more than they would before. So I, knew, I wasn't particularly mad because I knew that our work really was just beginning and the opportunities were just coming. That's one reason. The other reason I wasn't particularly manic, calm delight, calm delight, um, was that it, when we chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, we're asking for service, that's all. We're not asking God for promotion or for a, a beautiful girl to come along or radiant health. We're saying, Lord, uh, whatever you want. You know, if you want to bless us with favors, if you want to handle us roughly by your embrace, if you want to lead us to success and fame and fortune, if you want to make us ignominious, uh, wandering the street, that's all right. Whatever you want, that's that. Just don't kick me away. Allow me to do some service. The only thing that I'm afraid of is that you'll cut me off from service. So I knew that when that temple was open, that Krishna hadn't kicked me away. I knew that he was giving me an opportunity for more service. And so because of those two reasons, I don't remember myself as being particularly um, manic on that glorious, glorious day. And if you want a big event, hey, hey, if you're a Krishna devotee, Every day there's a big event. Every day the Lord of the universe has presented himself before you in the temple. Every day you can come and sing the Lord's holy names and offer incense and flowers and art. He's so kind that that Lord of unlimited universes has appeared in the temple and he's standing patiently before you ready to accept your service. That is a huge event. That is, and I cannot imagine anyone who is a mature devotee missing that. I can't imagine anyone who has that opportunity to appear at, before the Lord of the universe who has come all the way from the spiritual world just to encourage us in our service, just to be present before us. I can't imagine anyone taking that lightly or sleeping through that. That is a great, great event. And you're not going to have a good day if you get up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning expecting great things to happen. Because you just missed the greatest thing that could have possibly ever happened. You just missed an opportunity that's not even available to most of the world's population. And then just being able to take a breath, just being given another day, and going out uh, uh, and, and seeing the fields and the flowers and the, and the sky and the sunset and the sunrise. All these are the components of greatness, of great, great events. Mowing the lawn, smelling the cut grass. Don't make the mistake of living for great events. We've had uh, six, I don't know, I won't go into why, <laughs> but we've had six major events in the last 30 days. Six major events. 
Now, I used to, you know, plan and look forward to uh, the festival of India for months in advance. You know, it was like three months. Or the Janmasmi festival would be a month of planning. But we had them all that and other events within the last 30 days. So right now, a major event is just like another day for us. We're definitely not, oh, yeah, right, today's the festival of India, and next week is Janmashtami, and next week is the yoga fest, and next week is the youth tour. So for us, a festival day is pretty much a quotidian thing. <laughs> so just winding up here with the last few slides, we're going to get tested by our emotions. Our emotions are going to try to rock the boat try to dislodge us from a resolve to be steady and steadfast. Some of us are up and down. Some of us are hard to get along with. Some of us keep blaming this moodiness on our circumstances or on how someone is treating us or how we feel. But I'm asking you today to put a smile on your face, to stop making excuses, and start taking responsibility for your own moods and your own attitudes. You know, some mornings we get up with the blahs, but the question is, are we going to let those feelings dictate what kind of a day we're going to have or are we going to rule over them and choose to be in a good mood uh, are we going to allow circumstances and people to steal our joy or are we going to take control and turn it around knowing that if we do this God will bless us God will show his favor upon us and he'll bring us out better than we were before the trick is to stay on the offensive. The best defense against moodiness is to be on the offense. Don't allow yourself to destabilize. When you start feeling negative, when you start feeling, feeling depressed, just shuck it off. Just shake it off. Just shake it off. Just kick the dust off your feet, put a smile on your face, and God will be pleased. That is an expression of your faith. You want excitement? You want big events? Every time you feel negative, every time you feel depressed, clamp it down. Do not give in to it. That's a victory. You can make every day a life full of victories. And you'll get better and better and better and better, and it will lead you to a life of victory. One victory after another victory, and you'll get addicted to those kinds of victories which lead to an improvement in character. And ultimate satisfaction and pleasure will come for that. Stand firm. Don't get upset. Don't lose your faith, your peace. Put your faith to work. Pay things for Krishna to turn things in your favor. Lastly, be realistic, not idealistic. You know people that are very polite, and very funny and witty and very compassionate who uh, at, 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 on a moment's provocation go explode like a volcano? You know people like that? I know people like that. I am like that to some extent. Because they're, they're, they're treating people with courtesy, with respect, with kindness, and they expect treat people to treat them the way they treat And it's not going to happen. We're living in a broken world, full of broken people. And, and, and if, you, if, if, you know, if you keep saying, well, she ought to be like that way, or he ought to be like that way, or this ought to, you're in the wrong place. This is not the world of ought. The spiritual world, the kingdom of the God, is the world where everything is as it ought to be. And you left, and I left. So don't complain that this world, this prison house, is as it ought to be. Because if you don't like it, you shouldn't have come here in the first place. And if you want to resolve the problem, you need to get back home, back to Godhead. And that involves learning stability, learning steadfastness. 
not being disappointed or surprised when someone doesn't live up to your expectations of them. <laughs> if, you, if you get to the end of a long day at work and you're tired and you're just, you just want to go home and put your feet up and the boss says, oh, we got something to come up, you got to stay another three hours, don't be surprised. Don't be disappointed. Expect it. Because this is a broken world full of broken people. Be realistic, not idealistic. I may have my plan, but Krishna has his plan. And his plan is to test me and to mold me into something beautiful and something eternal. Everything's in his hands. We need to stay in faith, knowing that God's promise is that all things will work for my good. Not all things are good. But if we stay in faith, all things will work for our good. Even in trying times, God has us in the palm of his hands. In trying times, we're growing. Our character is being developed. In my life, one thing I've learned is that as good-looking and as nice as I am to people, not everybody likes me. There's really nothing I can do about that. The postman might as well ask, why doesn't that dog like me? This world is made in such a way that even without trying it, you're going to get enemies. Enemies will come on you. Opponents will come. People will backbite you like barking dogs. That's just the nature of this material world. We can't control that, but we can control how we react to it. Stability is a sign of maturity. So I'm asking today, let's not live by how we feel. Let's go deeper than that. Act by what we know. And what do we know? God's in control. God has a plan for our life. God brings it about that all things work for our good. And God has a place for us in the spiritual world. And that His power to benefit us is greater than any power to do us bad. So when we know these four or five things, what can ruin our day? What can steal our joy? If we always stay conscious of these facts which we know are true, what could possibly trip us up and ruin our day? No matter how friendly you are, no matter how much good you do, people will not like you. You'll have enemies no matter what. You'll have things come against you. So you need to decide beforehand that whatever doesn't work out today, if someone criticizes me or treats me bad, I'm not going to change my attitude. I'm not going to lose my joy if I get stressed, stuck in traffic. I'm not going to stress out if I don't get all my work done. It's not going to be ruining my day if someone criticizes me. Try for the middle position. Don't live on the mountaintop. Don't live uh, in the valleys. And in conclusion, we need to shake off negative feelings and depression. Be done with this roller coaster mentality. Wake up in the morning and decide we're going to have a great day. This could save your marriage, could save your job. By this kind of practice, you'll learn to be consistently happy, consistently grateful. You'll be consistently in a good mood. And if you do this, even in the dry seasons, Krishna will not only promote you, but he will prosper you. And you will live in victory, no matter what the circumstances. So with me, if you will. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Rama.